Well, you precious people, we have a lot of work to do, uh, so let's just get right to it. I invite you to John chapter 14. We'll start in verse 15. We'll read through the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and I encourage you to open your eyes to the text, your ears to my voice, and your heart to the God who spoke it. John 14, picking up in verse 15, this is God's Word. If you love me, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Join me at God's throne once again. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Today's passage was spoken by our Lord Jesus during the final hours of his life, maybe day and a half max before he went to the cross. He knew that his departure from the world would cause concern for his disciples, and Jesus wanted them to have comfort. That's last week's sermon. And he wanted them to have divine power. That's this week's sermon. A particular power, a power for loving obedience to Jesus. That's what Jesus wants. That's why he said these words. And so the title of today's message is The Ministry of the Holy Spirit. I have five considerations that come right in order from the passage. The first is in verses 15 to 17. The fullness of power to love and obey Jesus. Fullness of power to love and obey Jesus. You see it in verse 15. It's familiar territory. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 15 is a succinct summary of the shape of the Christian life. This is what Christianity looks like. If you love Jesus, 
You aim to obey what he said. Love and obey. Without obedience, no matter what we may profess, we prove ourselves loveless. And without love to Christ, all of our so-called obedience and command-keeping and law-abiding, all of our Bible reading, all of our praying, all of our church attendance, all of our ritual ceremonies, our baptizing and Lord's Supper taking, all of our so-called obedience without love to Christ is simply self-righteousness and reasons for which God should condemn us. I can remember having verse 15 pressed onto my soul. It felt like a spiritual tattoo on the inside of me. I'd been a Christian for about three months. I met a man at that point who for the next five years until he died poured himself into me and in our very first time together of his pouring into my life he brought this verse to my attention I saw from my Savior's own lips that all of my sin struggles all of my half-heartedness toward Jesus had a remedy There's a way not to live under the tyranny of sin. There's a way not to live in indifference toward Christ. My need, so abundantly obvious from verse 15, was more love to Christ. If I loved Him more, I would obey Him more. The big deficit in my life was lovelessness. So I needed love. And I needed love to Jesus Because all Christians want him glorified, and he's glorified by the radiant beauty of Christ coming through the lives of his people in Christian living, in obedience to his commands. So for those who love Jesus, his focus on obey my commandments becomes sweet enticement rather than rigid rule book. Christians don't like to be told what to do. They love it. They love it. We have a master. We have a king. We have a potentate. We have a despot. He ran away to heaven with our heart, and we want his good instruction. So if you love him, you'll obey his commands. That's clear as day in verse 15. So what are his commands? Sometimes it's singular in this text, and sometimes it's plural. Obey my word, obey my words, and there's been a lot of ink spilled trying to figure out exactly what what commands are we talking about, but the preponderance of the evidence of the passage points to the totality of God's revelation to us in His Word and in His Son. Everything God has ever said. The commands of Jesus are not suggestions. They're not good ideas. They're not for you to deliberate about. You don't get to decide whether or not you want to keep them. And if you live with that posture before God, you are fundamentally throwing your head back with your eyes open to heaven, saying to him, I don't care what you say, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. What does he command? Well, if you were to take all of the imperatives of Jesus, do this. I command this. You would hear things like, be born again. That's a command. You would hear things like repent, come to me, believe in me, love me, listen to me, abide in me, take up your cross and follow me, die to yourself, fear God even above physical death, worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm taking these from John Piper's great book, What Jesus Demands from the World, where he organized all the imperatives of Jesus under 50 different headings. I've given you 10 of them. More examples, you must pray. You must not be anxious. You must humble yourself. You have to do the will of God. You have to love your enemies. I command you to love your neighbor. I demand that you lay up treasures in heaven. I command you to give to Caesar what belongs to him and to God what belongs to him. I order you to baptize disciples to eat the supper in remembrance of Jesus and his redeeming love. I demand that you let your light shine before all men. I command you to make disciples of all peoples. Should I just pray, say amen, we go do that? 
Is that the shape of your life? I'll put it Jesus' way. If you love him, it's absolutely the shape of your life. You will do that from love to Christ. If you love me, you will obey my commands. So the question is not if Christians will obey Jesus, it's how. How am I going to do that? Can I give you guys a quick parenthesis here? I feel like a colossal failure in all of that. How are we going to do it if it's not negotiable? The first point is the fullness of power to love and obey Jesus. The fullness of power. You need a resource. You need fuel. And it flows from a person. The power, the fullness of power is not an it. It's not an ooze. It's a he. That's verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. A helper, a he, the spirit of truth. Him, him, he. Friends, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. Our Grace Church member affirmation of faith, which every one of our covenant members has stood before this precious congregation and says, yes, I affirm these affirmations, and yes, I want to be held accountable to walk in light of this covenant. This is what all of our members said yes to. Article 4, member affirmation of faith. We believe in God the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. We believe the Holy Spirit is a person who instead of glorifying himself, glorifies the person and work of Jesus Christ, apart from the gracious working of the Holy Spirit, no one could come to faith in Christ. You need power. You need fullness of power. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Before he can even pause to put a period at the end of the sentence, he tells us how we will have the resource necessary to obey him, the Spirit. Look at verse 17. He abides with you. He will be in you. Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection from the dead, the reality of the person and the reality of the gospel labors of Jesus is the bottomless reservoir that the Holy Spirit reaches down into to fill us with so that we may obey the commands of our Redeemer. The indwelling presence, the real power are the requisite resources that we must have to obey the commands of Jesus. So the how for Christians honor Christ is not in our own strength as we just sang. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing we need help. Where does the help come from? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle, and He wins our obedience through the indwelling Spirit who pulls from the resources of God the Son to enable us to obey. So we must have the strength of the Spirit of God to obey the commands of the Son of God so that all the glory will go only to the only one true and triune God. So first, the fullness of power to love and obey. Jesus is a person. God, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls our helper, the spirit of truth. Number two, verses 18 to 20. Not only do we have fullness of power to love and obey Jesus, but we are also protected forever by the gospel of Jesus. Look there in verses 18 to 20. As you're skimming it, see if you can see where I'm getting what I'm about to say. The Lord Jesus understood that his followers would have deep heartache, they would have bewilderment when he left them, when he died. John, the apostle who wrote this gospel, stood there by the cross as Jesus breathed his last breath. He had heard all the insults, 
He saw the blood splattered. He saw the heaving chest of his Lord and Master gasping for his last breaths. He heard the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. He stood there and watched his Lord die. Jesus knew in this passage that his followers would be crushed. They would be bewildered. They'd be devastated, full of heartache. Therefore, it was vitally important that they understood death is not the final word for him and therefore for them They are forever protected by the gospel of Jesus. His departure would be nothing for their security because Jesus died and rose again. His risen victory is the guarantee that nothing, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where do I get that out of verses 18 to 20? Verse 19, because. Do you see that word? Because I live, you will live also. This is an absolute, rock-solid, watertight guarantee of protection by Jesus, but particularly the gospel of Jesus. Yes, I'm going to die. It's going to be about 24 hours from now. I'm well aware of that. And I'm telling you, death is not death to me. I'm not going to die. I'm going to kill death. I'm going to put death to death. And because I live, not you might, you will live. And when you live, you will know, verse 20, that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. We will be totally convinced of the seamless inter-Trinitarian fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one true God, we will know that the Son is in the Father, and we will know that to that same degree that they have eternal unity, so also we are in His Son. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and will soon be absorbed into the glory of Jesus and His inter-Trinitarian delight in the Father. We've been saved by Jesus into the everlasting enjoyment of God, and nothing's going to undo that. On that day, we will know, verse 23 things, Jesus is in his Father, we are in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. That's all in verse 20. Oh, glorious day. We're just saying we're almost home. Oh, glorious day. If you could see it now, you would run with all your might to pursue Jesus with everything you've got. Oh God, give us a glimpse when at long last we are unbreakably persuaded that our union with God is as solid as God's union with God. You're going to know this. Jesus is in his Father. You're going to know that there are not two or ten or ten trillion gods. You will know that there is one God. You will know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share the same nature. You're going to know that there are in one another, and you will know that you are equally in His Son, protected forever. You're going to know that. And Jesus wanted His followers to know that before He went to purchase their redemption by His murderous death. You're forever protected by the gospel of Jesus. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, This is verse 19. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When Jesus got up from the dead, he guaranteed that you will never die. You are forever protected by the gospel of Jesus. So we've seen two things. We have the fullness of power to love and obey Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. We're forever protected. That's not up for compromise or negotiation. We are forever protected by the gospel of Jesus because I live, you will live also. That's a promise. Number three, in the here and now, all of God's people get fresh outpourings of the presence of Jesus. This is so sweet. Verses 21 to 25. In verse 21, Jesus is reiterating verse 15. He's just flipping the order. In verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey me. In verse 21, 
If you have my commandments and keep them, you're the one who loves me. Do you see he says the same thing in reverse order? Where do I get fresh outpourings of the presence of Jesus? Oh, glory, glory, verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. We already know from verses 16 and 17 that the keeping of Jesus' commands is owing to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, not our own strength. But in verse 21, we're also learning that such obedience leads to fresh, ever-deepening awareness of the Father's love for us. Jesus is not suggesting that our love to Him, our love to Christ, merits the Father's love. If you love me, then the Father will love you too. It's not that kind of barter with God. Rather, he's saying those who love and obey Jesus will have deeper, fresher, experiential awareness of the Father's love for them that he set on them from eternity past. There's no way the verse could mean that our love to Jesus merits the Father's love to us because we've already seen that our love to Christ is owing entirely to the Spirit causing us to be born again, John 3. This is the first time, 15 and following, that Jesus speaks or John speaks of the believer's love to Jesus. For 14 chapters, he said nothing of that. And now he's saying, if you love me, if you love me. If, if, yes, if you can receive 14 chapters of my unfailing love for you and the fact that I'm gonna go prove that love, demonstrate God's love for us in that Christ died for us, I'm gonna go prove 14 chapters that I'm the Savior who loves you, now you love me. You must first be avalanched by the love of God for you in Christ before you can ever truly love him back. Clyde said, the brother who discipled me, our love is but a rising mist created by that rush which plunges to the rocks beneath and sanctifies the just. The just are made just to sanctify the Lord within our heart that our love may be a testament to love's exquisite art. So there's two things we have to do in this third point, fresh outpourings of the presence of Jesus. I will disclose myself to them. Two things, verse 21 has both of them, receive and see. Receive the Father's love and see the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Now, precious saints, I'm talking to people who have fled to Jesus from the wrath to come. I'm talking for just a moment to people who have hidden themselves in the ark of Christ from the tsunami of God's wrath that's on its way to this world. Precious, precious Christians, you may not feel loved. You may battle every day to know that you're loved. That is not ultimate. Verse 21, your Savior wants you to know You are loved, and as you lovingly obey Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will grow in deeper experiential awareness of the Father's love for you. But verse 21 says, and the Son's love, and I will love Him. The Father and the Son will continue to show to you overtures of His love for you, His unfailing agape for you, His never-ceasing, never-failing, never-stopping, unquenchable, indefatigable love for you. You cannot wear God out from loving you. What we're seeing here is the deep fountain of agape love. What God requires for us, from us, He provides for us. He, re- he requires that we love His Son. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to love and obey. And then he rewards us with greater awareness as his love as a result. What a father. Do you see that unfolding reality? Love me. How? I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Thank you. I love you. 
Okay, now I'm going to reward you for loving me. How? I'm going to let you know more deeply how much I love you. What he requires, he provides. He gets all the glory as we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto him. You have to receive the Father's love. That's verse 21. And then you have to see the Savior. This is the second part of our third point. Verse 21, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Not only does Jesus want his followers to know that the Father will shower ever-increasing awareness of his love upon his obedient subjects, but he will also, Jesus will also continue to reveal himself. Guys, he's about to die. We don't feel like they felt when he was saying this. If we were in their shoes, our heart would be troubled and we would be afraid. That's the word that repeats in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither be fearful. That's how you would feel if you were in their shoes. Do you know his answer to them in that moment? Good news, I'm going to show myself to you. That's all you've got. Don't you understand how we feel? They didn't say that. ESV renders the word in verse 21, manifest, as does the King James. I will manifest myself to you. The New American Standard, I will disclose myself to you. The NIV, I will show myself to you. The Christian Standard and New Living Translation, I will reveal myself to you. The Greek lexicon, I will lay open to your view everything about me. I'm going to show myself to you. That's the comfort for every troubled, fearful heart. And if you want a bonus, I've got it in my notes, and I said this morning to myself, you've got to skip it because you don't have enough time. I'm going to give it to you anyway. Experiencing the presence of God. This is verse 23. This word, dwell, abide, remain, it's only used two times in the entire New Testament, right here in verse 23 and then earlier in verse 2. He will abide. We will abide. We will make our home with you. Verse 23, the idea is God will take up residence. He will move in to the life of people who lovingly obey Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. God will be with you here. Isn't that the comfort that the disciples needed? And isn't this awesome? This word used two times in the New Testament. Verse 23, God will be with you now, Jesus said to his fearful, troubled followers right before he died on the cross. And in verse 2, he uses the same word, the only other time it's used in the entire Bible, to say, and you will be with him forever. He's with you here. You're with him there. You cannot escape his presence. What a God. Do we have fullness of power to love and obey Jesus? Yes, the Holy Spirit. Are we protected forever by the gospel of Jesus? Yes. As He lives, so also we live. Does Christ promise fresh outpouring of His presence to all His loving, obedient subjects? Yes. He will continue to reveal Himself to them. So number four, verse 26 to 28, He will pulverize your fear by the promises of Jesus. Jesus doesn't play with lies. He destroys them. Look again, verse 26 to 28, Jesus is speaking all these words beneath the shadow of his cross. He knows, verse 11 of a few chapters later, chapter 17, 11, he knows he's about to depart from this world. He knew that his disciples' hearts would be tempted, verse 27, to be troubled, to be fearful. So what does he do? What does Jesus do to combat the experience of trouble and fear that he knows is going to come upon his people. This is so good. What does he do? He demolishes it. He pulverizes it. He disintegrates it. He turns it into dust. How does he do it? W-I-L-L. Will. Verse 26, the Father will send the Helper in Jesus' name. The Spirit will teach you all things. The Spirit will bring to your mind all that I said. 
my troubled and fearful heart. The deep waters of my rumbling soul when I'm wrecked with anxiety and uncertainty is no match for the promises of my God. He will comfort and fill with peace every heart that is fully reliant upon Jesus. Our hope in turmoil is not our ability to recall God's promises, and we should work to do that. We should earnestly put forth effort to do that. We should memorize an arsenal of promises from the Bible. But our hope is not our ability to recall that arsenal. Our hope is that God, the Holy Spirit, will fulfill His divine assignment, His ministry for which He has been dispatched by the Father and the Son to all the people who belong to Jesus by applying the precious presence of Christ to our heart. Put another way, the Holy Spirit is really good at His job. He's never going to fail. The place I get the point, your fears are pulverized by the promises of Jesus, I could have said they're pulverized by the presence of Jesus. Even better than the promise is the promise maker. That's verse 27. It's the word peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The peace that Jesus is referring to is Himself. Wait, you're about to die and leave us, but you're also going to be with us forever? Yes. I'm leaving something with you. That's what He said in verse 27. What are you going to leave with me, Jesus? Peace? I appreciate that, but I want you. That's what He's saying. How do I know it? Because this same gospel writer uses the same word in the same way after Jesus gets up from the dead. You remember all the disciples were scared stiff. They went and locked themselves in a room because they knew that they were next on the hit list. They don't know what to do. Jesus has already appeared to a few of them, but he hadn't appeared to all of them yet. Thomas being the most infamous one he hadn't appeared to. They're in a room. Jesus shows up without coming through the door. And when Jesus is there... He clarifies what my peace in our text means. John 20, 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. Like if you think you're afraid, wait till somebody shows up in the middle of the room without coming through the door. The doors having been shut, he stood in their midst and said, you ready for this? Peace with you. Same word, used the same way. Peace is with you. Meaning peace is a person, not a thing. And Jesus is saying here in John 14 that your fear is going to be pulverized by my promises. The Father will do this. The Spirit will do this. I will do this. And I'm even giving you my peace. I'm leaving that with you, meaning I will be with you. I will never leave you. It's the same thing Paul talks about in Philippians. You get the peace of God. In Philippians 4, 7, but even better, you get the God of peace in Philippians 4, 9. John 14, 27 is about Jesus giving us himself because he knows that our hearts are often troubled. That's why he started the chapter, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The key is God, the answer for our constant accusatory hearts, our fickle hearts, our weak faith. The answer is God. The answer is 14.1, me. The answer is 14.27, my peace. Better to have Christ by your sickbed than to be healthy and never need Christ at all. Jesus knew that these people were sick with despair. They were sick with hopelessness. And I'm here to tell you on the authority of John 14 and from the heart of your Redeemer, it's better for you. 
It's better for you to be put in a posture of despair and hear Jesus say, I got you. Than to never despair and live your whole life in so-called self-sufficiency, never feeling your need for Jesus. Verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have, what? Rejoiced because I said I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Jesus is here still pulverizing the fears of his followers with his promises. The way he does it here in verse 28 is by use of a syllogism, a watertight logical argument. If A is true and B is true, then C is true. If you have love for Jesus, verse 28, and you have true knowledge of the Father's greatness, verse 28, then something has to happen. You rejoice that Jesus leaves you to go there. They weren't very glad, were they? How do you get glad about something you don't feel glad about? You preach to yourself and stop listening to yourself. Tell yourself truth. You need syllogisms. You have love for Jesus. You know the Father's greatness. Jesus is going to be there. Get happy, heart. Here's how it works. The very thing that troubled the hearts of the disciples and stoked the fires of their fear was Jesus' repetition. He was actually provoking the trouble. His repetition of the fact that he would soon leave them. That's why they're troubled. That's why they're fearful. And now he's telling them, be happy about it. But it's this very fact that Jesus said should rejoice their heart. If you, if you loved me and you knew where I'm going, your heart would have, boom, just flowered open to the sun because of the superiority of the Father. Now, heretics have run amok with verse 28. See? Jesus is less than God. The Father is greater than the Son. Jesus himself said so. Well, they just picked the wrong book for that argument. Nobody has more to say about the deity of Jesus in all 66 books of the Bible than John. He's not saying greater in terms of divinity, godness. Carson gave an illustration and said, if I were to say, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth is greater than I, no one would take this to mean that she's more human than me. Carson said, everybody would understand, the queen is greater than me in wealth, authority, majesty, influence, renown, doubtless a lot of other ways, and you would need a surrounding discussion to clarify what I mean by she's greater than me. This is where Jesus is going in verse 28. He's expressing that Christians should be very glad, very glad, rejoice that Jesus is where he rightfully belongs and we are now blessed with the unbroken presence of God the Spirit in our lives at all times. That's why we rejoice. He should be there. He doesn't belong in ignominy and shame. It's not right for him to walk this sin-torn world. He belongs in regal majesty. He should be enthroned. He receives all angelic praises. There should be an unmitigated brightness of his glory shining the whole universe. I'm happy that he's there, and I'm doubly happy that he's my redeemer. He went back to the glory that he shared with the Father before the world was and that should make us very happy, which leads to our final consideration, verses 29 to 31. Our faith is perfected by the obedience of Jesus. He could have just taken us with him. Okay, guys, it's a wrap. Let's go. He could have done that. But he wants to prove his power. He wants to show his triumph over sin, over yourself, and over Satan by exercising his omnipotent 
saving rights in our life as we continue to walk out our Christianity until we do see him face to face. He's more glorified in showing his transforming power in us than by just beaming us up right after he justifies us. I want you to look at verses 29 to 31 as we take this as our final point. As you're looking there, I want you to see hard and bad. Jesus knew that his disciples had two fundamental fears. Number one, hard things happening to us without Jesus here to help us. That was fear number one. Fear number two, bad things happening to us without Jesus here to help me. He answers the hard in verse 29. He answers the bad in verse 30. Then in verse 31, he proceeds to give them the rock-solid foundation upon which we can all stand to know that our faith will not fail no matter what. Here's how it works. What about, okay, let's put ourselves there in this moment. Jesus is about to die on the cross. We're talking to him in an intimate setting. And we say to him, Jesus, when you leave, what about when all the hard stuff happens? Here's his answer. I told you in advance so that when it happens, you may believe. This is where I get this part of our final point. Faith is perfected by the obedience of Jesus. Believe, I literally mean faith. One lexicon said this means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance, to have confidence in, to have faith in, to entrust oneself to. When it happens, I'm telling you beforehand, I know it's going to be hard, but I'm telling you right now so that when it's hard, something happens in you, namely entrusting yourself to me. I got you. What if bad things happen? Okay, hard, hard. What about evil? What about bad? Verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Nothing gets more evil than the personification of evil, Satan. What if really bad things happen, Jesus? What if Satan trails me and tracks me? What if his minions won't leave me alone? What if the demonic oppression just keeps assaulting my soul? What if lies against your truthfulness won't go away? What if the fiery darts don't get shot from one bow, but they get shot from this fully automatic weapon from every angle? Jesus is basically saying, the greatest enemy you have outside of yourself, I think that self I believe that the scripture teaches that the great rival to God in your life and mine is self, not Satan. But Satan's a very big rival. I, be, I take Jesus to be saying right here in verse 30, your greatest enemy outside of self, Satan, he's coming. Is he saying, so I'm going to leave you to fend for yourself? Is that his message in verse 30? Not at all. Look at it. You got to keep reading. He's not saying that he's going to wait, going away to live his disciples to fend for themselves against the onslaughts of Satan. The point is that here it is, verse 30, he has nothing in me. He's coming. You're mine. He gained zero ground in me. You scared of being assaulted by him? Nobody's been more assaulted than me. Satan's not God's equal opposite. He's not omnipresent. He's in one place at one time. He goes where he thinks he can cause the most problems to Christ and his kingdom. I take Matthew 4 to mean Satan never left Jesus. He attacked him every day, every night. He trailed him everywhere he went. He constantly had a sinister scowl on his face or sometimes a smirk, thinking that he was getting an advantage. And Jesus is saying in verse 30, don't you love it? He has He never got one cell of my body. He never got one grain of my attention. Satan's biggest weapon is death. The reason death exists 
is because sin is in the world and the serpent deceived our first parents and therefore death came. That's his biggest weapon. He needed Jesus to sin just one time so that Jesus' death would not be vicarious for sinners like you and me. But what does the death of a sinless substitute mean for Satan? It means that Jesus died to obliterate Satan's power over those for whom he died. Because Jesus took his sinless life to the cross and bled and died for you and me as a vicarious substitute, a sinless Savior. Because he did that for us in his sinless death, Satan therefore has zero hold on you. Or you could put it this way. He has as much hold on you as he had on Jesus. He has nothing in me. Instead of being fearful that Jesus was about to leave them, Jesus wanted his disciples to know that his sinless death is the best thing that could have ever happened for us. And instead of leaving us to fend for ourselves, Jesus spent the whole passage telling his followers that he would give us the very same power that he himself relied upon to overcome temptation and trials, namely the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived as the perfectly faith-filled man, totally depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God's commands. And Jesus is saying, look, come close, followers. I hear you. I know that you're worried about the hard, and I know you're worried about the bad. But come close. I hear you. In about 24 hours, I'm going to take a dagger and put it in the heart of death. I'm going to kill death. And when I'm gone, I'm giving you the same power I relied upon to overcome sin and temptation, namely the Holy Spirit. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. I got to say one more thing. I got a big scratch through it in my notes because I knew I wouldn't have time. But precious people, come with me one more step. Every one of you have an immortal soul. All of you. You're going to live forever. The question is where? And do you want to know ultimately why the faith of every Christian will never fail even though we feel the weakness of our faith? Do you want to hear your Redeemer answer the question, okay, hard's coming, bad's coming. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I'm not minimizing that. I still stink at being a Christian. I'm not good at it. Do you want to hear your Redeemer tell you in his own words that he guarantees he will perfect your faith, even though you feel like such a colossal failure at being a Christian? Listen to him. Verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's go. Let's go. He knows where he's going. That phrase, I do as the Father commanded me, Jesus gave one phrase, verse, 20, verse 30, to the unleashing of Satan's influence on the world. One phrase. Like, we think that's our biggest problem. He gave one phrase, verse 30 to that. Then he immediately turns the focus back to himself and back to his obedience to the Father. Here's the point. If Jesus failed to obey the Father's commands, then you have no hope, no matter how much you obey. But if Jesus accomplished all the work of obedience entrusted to him by the Father, including obedience all the way to the cross death, Philippians 2 then there's nothing that those who trust Him alone for salvation can do. There's nothing that can be done to separate us from His love. Do you see Jesus say in verse 31, I want the whole world to know I love the Father. I said this passage, verse 15, is the first time Jesus speaks of His people's love for Him. 
Verse 31 is the first time and only time he speaks of his love for the Father. Instead, Jesus is constantly talking about the Father's love for him. The Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing. For this reason, the Father loves the Son because I lay my life that I may take it up again. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And here in verse 31, he's saying, I want everybody to know I love him. And I'm doing everything he commanded me to do. So it works like this. If Jesus accomplished all the work entrusted to him by the Father, including obedience to the cross death, then there's nothing that those who trust him alone for salvation can do to be separated from the love of God in Christ. If he didn't do all that the Father commanded, there's no hope for us, even if we do obey all of the commands in our best efforts. So here's how it works, precious saints. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. Christ will hold me fast. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. You want to know the application? Five points of the sermon. Receive the power of Jesus by relying wholly upon God the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the resources necessary to love and obey Jesus. Do that by believing the gospel accomplishments of Jesus. Verse 18 to 20, he lives, you will live. So that you can enjoy fresh unfoldings of the wonderfulness and enoughness of Jesus. He will reveal himself to you. And simultaneously have your fears repeatedly pulverized by the promises of Jesus. The Father will do it, the Spirit will do it, and I will do it. That's what he said in 26 to 28. Until at long last your faith is 100% perfected by the obedience of Jesus when you see him face to face. Verse 29 to 31. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired the passage that we've tried to consider and indwells every Christian who's come to Jesus by faith. And that's my prayer for any among us who have not. That he or she, man or woman, boy or girl, would right here, right now, come to the risen Jesus by faith for forgiveness of sins and for life eternal. And for all who have come to him, O oh Lord, I pray that the sweet testimony of our Lord as he spoke these words right under the shadow of the cross thinking about us and not himself oh God help us to receive receive the sweet counsel of our Savior and to embrace the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit fill us with the Spirit help us to walk in the Spirit do not let us quench the Holy Spirit. We're sorry for all the ways we've grieved the Holy Spirit. Lord, fill us. Fill us to overflowing with Yourself, God the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name.